I'd heard about prostate cancer. Most men have. I even knew about the heightened risk for black men, which, when adjusted, means that it affects one in three of us. One in three. But this was only meant to happen to old men. Other men. <laughs> that wasn't until it happened to me. I couldn't make these stories up. These are the stories, the good, the bad and the unbelievable about my prostate cancer journey. So strap yourself in and let's go. Episode 20. Talk is good, but not cheap. I was fascinated by Didi's dad, Richard, from the last podcast. I really wanted to learn more from his story. I just couldn't get it out of my head. So a couple of days later, I asked her if she thought he would be up for an interview. She said she'd ask him, and she came back a day or so later and she said, well, that was easier than I thought it would be. He told me to give you his number. I gave him a couple of days, and then I called him. We had a little bit of a chat, and we agreed to meet two days later. The interview was set for 9am in a coffee shop local to where Richard lives, in Peckham. Now, Peckham has been undergoing a regeneration. Basically, it's been yuppified. What used to be quite run down and not the best of places to, to be has now posh new shops. But more importantly, lots of shiny new high-rise housing that the locals can't afford. The coffee shop that we were meeting at was one of these new additions to this gentrified Peckham. I got there at quarter past eight and there were about six other people sitting down in various stages of beverage consumption or internet use. You know the sort, they buy a coffee and then they'll sit there for the next three hours hogging the table, the chair and the Wi-Fi. I'd always wanted to talk to somebody who was going through the later stages of prostate cancer. Not from some ghoulish point of view, but to be able to answer any questions that I was asked based on someone telling me firsthand, and not from a book, or secondhand, from the horse's mouth, as they say. At the same time, yes, I was naturally interested. I was really excited to do this interview, so much so that I didn't flinch when a young, pretty bank robber called Barista extorted me for a cup of hot water with a bag in it and a blueberry muffin with a hidden precious gemstone bait somewhere inside it. I never could understand people paying extortionate rates for coffee with different types of mechanised foam in it. And to think, I didn't even drink coffee, but here I am, paying an arm and a leg for a cup of tea. Anyway, the first table I found was towards the back of the cafe. I was looking for somewhere quiet so we could do the recording, but the first one was also a bit near to the toilets, so um, not the best place I wanted it to be. Richard arrived at 10 minutes to 9 and called me from outside. I told him I was already inside, buried away at the back, and I tried a, a manly, cool dude kind of wave to tell him where I was. You know, he was not what I expected. I was expecting to see some old man with a cane for some reason, but he was nothing of the sort. He wasn't likely to be running the London Marathon anytime soon, but he was certainly younger looking than his years. We shook hands and I got another extortionate cup of hot water with a bag for Richard and we sat and got comfortable. I told him about my blog and why I wanted to interview him, what I was hoping to get out of it. I got my digital recorder out, set it on the table and we were ready to begin. 
I had nearly 60 questions split into different sections about you, your kids, your family, prostate cancer, and the current situation. I figured that I would split the blog into two parts beforehand. I had this confirmed for me when he first said that he might have to leave at 9.30, and then minutes later, he actually wanted to finish the interview immediately because he thought it would make more sense to continue in February just after his next hospital appointment, and he would know how his treatment had gone. Now, I'm very much a here and now person, and I just thought that if we rescheduled this interview, there was probably a good chance it wasn't going to happen. I just had this feeling. I said that was okay, trying to hide my disappointment. And then I added, how about we just cover the personal and family background details now? You know, as we're here. He was happy with that. Richard is 68 years old and he lives in South London. He followed his mother and sister, who had established themselves here a few years earlier. This was in 1965. When his mother moved to America, after only a few years in England, he followed her there too and stayed for five years. He then moved between the two countries for a little while before deciding to stay with his sister in England. He would say he had a great childhood. That is, with the exception of his relationship with his father. He never grew up with his father and had little physical contact with him. Then he just stopped coming around altogether. He would then only speak to him over the phone three more times in his lifetime. When his father died in 1987, he decided not to attend his funeral. He said to himself, why should I go to the funeral as I don't know the man as such? He does not even know what his father died of. It was his mother that was mother and father to him. It did hurt him, but as he said, life goes on and it's just one of those things. At that moment when he shrugged his shoulders, he reminded me of another stubborn, hard-headed, but handsome person that I know only too well. <clears throat> that being the case, I verified it later on in the conversation by asking a question that would reveal the secret hurt that he actually felt. His father had heard that he was in America and called him one day. Other than exchanging small talk for 15 minutes, he said to him, you have three sisters and two brothers in Philadelphia and you should go and meet them. And that was it. A little bit more small talk and that would be the last time he would ever speak to his father again. Richard did meet up with these brothers and sisters and though he got on well with two of the sisters and one of the brothers, the other two siblings made it clear that they didn't want to continue communication. He said quite casually, he thinks his dad may have as much as 40 children. I looked him straight in the eyes and raised my voice as I repeated a number. 40? He didn't flinch. Other than a wry smile, that's why I would never date Jamaican women, because they could be family, and I don't even know it. He is never married, but laughs as he said he nearly, but decided against it. He has been with his current partner for more than 40 years. He has five daughters, Dee Dee, Brenda, Patricia, Tony, and Linda, from four different women. He would describe the birth as Dee Dee as the greatest moment of his life, and if he could change one thing about his life, it would be to not have so many baby mothers, as he put it. He also added that he would have bought property way back instead of buying a nice car. 
He's religious, but not practicing. He has this view of church that some of the people that go there are worse than him. And they have an over-importance of making money from their parishioners. In his lifetime, he has been a bus driver and a chauffeur. However, he would describe as his best job ever was being a courtesy car delivery driver. That was his last job before retirement. He's never smoked and would describe himself as a social drinker. He laughed as he said he can drink in a social environment or on his own. I asked him if his father was sitting in a chair next to him now and he could ask him three questions. What would he ask him? He thought for a second and said, why was he not in my life? And why did he leave my mum when I was young? Of course, I immediately had empathy and understood exactly his pain that he had buried and plastered over with. It's just one of those things. For the last seven years, he's been having a health MOT at his local surgery and has been encouraging his friends to do the same. In January of this year, he got the all clear from the surgery. But then about three days later, he got a call from King's College Hospital and they asked to see him. He went to the appointment and they told him that his result was not actually clear, but he actually had prostate cancer. I don't know how a mistake of that magnitude can be made. His PSA count was four compared to my 8.7 score. He went through the same battery of tests that I did. The digital rectal examination, the flow test, ultrasound, MRI scan, and finally a biopsy. On the strength of those tests, they told him that he would have to have the radical surgery. However, the night before the scheduled operation, he got a call from the hospital to say they were going to cancel the operation as his cancer had spread. This is the bit where I got really confused. I had stage two prostate cancer, which is where the cancer has developed, but has not yet spread outside of the prostate. Stage three is where the prostate has begun to split and the cancer has now spread to the nearest glands directly behind the prostate. Stage four is where the cancer has now spread widely to other organs within the body. Richard's cancer has metastasized. That means it's broken out of the protective coating of the prostate and has spread to the other organs. In his case, it has spread to three areas in his body, his spine, his hip, and he can't remember the other location. The doctors have said it's in its early stages, so they've just completed a course of chemotherapy. There's a very big difference between stage three and stage four. To put it bluntly, after stage three, there is stage four. After stage four, there is nothing. And no one has said anything to Richard about stages. After each of the chemotherapy treatments, he has to take eight injections in his stomach. He says he dreads this part as he is at the mercy of whichever nurse he gets. The needle should be applied at a 45 degree angle, but some nurses just don't care and have actually hurt him. The last time he actually had a trainee nurse and she couldn't get the needle in properly and he screamed out in pain. She had to call on a colleague to get it in correctly. He has to go back to the hospital on the 11th of February 2019 to get the result of his chemotherapy. The side effects of this have been a decreased libido and being wiped out at 4pm in the afternoons, which he has never experienced before. He has also cut down his drinking, and you know what? He said he didn't miss it. When he told his mother, she was worried and said she would pray for him. Unfortunately, his negative view of the church is strengthened by the fact that he has another brother 
that is a pastor in a church and that knows about his condition but has not even contacted him to see how he is. He finally said he's got two good friends and laughs as he says he doesn't need any more. I came out of this interview very much differently than when I went into it and have some very mixed feelings. I've heard some uncomfortable and some promising parallels to my own life and experience. Abandonment hits different people very differently, but also much the same. He was Dee Dee's world until she was 15 and then it fell apart. Curiosity would get the better of me. So fast forward a week and I decided to ask my dad how his relationship was with his dad. Something I'd never asked him before. I can still hear his joy and visualise his grinning face. How he recalled how close he was to his dad. So very close much closer than his other siblings. Of course, he couldn't see the delicious irony between him and me. I can honestly say I left it there and just brushed it off with a smile. Just one of those things. The promising part of all of this is that Dee Dee has five children, but now she has broken the cycle of dysfunction that existed for two generations before in her family. I have also done the same. (laughs) Thank you.